This week, taking a look at the life and untimely death of the Hitomi satellite. Everybody is devastated by it. Everything should have been double and triple checked. And the environmental legacy of landscape architect Capability Brown. I think if he was alive today, he would be very sensitive to nature conservation. And he would be designing places for nature as well as for people. Plus, why research into peer review is just as important as peer review itself. This is The Nature Podcast for July the 7th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. First up, Adam takes a look at the first publication to come from the Hitomi satellite, launched earlier this year. The Hitomi satellite was going to be a groundbreaking observatory. Its ability to precisely measure X-rays would allow it to study some of the hottest objects in the universe, from matter being sucked into black holes to the superheated matter between galaxies. And when the spacecraft was launched in February this year, everything appeared to go without a hitch. Here's Andy Fabian, a science advisor to the Japanese, US and European team behind the Hitomi mission. It had a great launch, everything worked very well, was put into a very good orbit, and everything looked set for a, a great observatory, it was a great space observatory. But it wasn't smooth sailing for long. After just five weeks of operation, some teething problems led the satellite to try to enter safe hold mode. When there's a problem on a satellite, you then cause everything just to move and align the solar panels to the sun, and then you make it stop doing anything until you can contact it and find out what's wrong. But Hitomi didn't stop everything. A stray mathematical symbol, a minus sign where there should have been a plus, meant that Hitomi's attempt to enter safe hold mode failed catastrophically. There was a wrong sign that had been uploaded, so instead of uh, bringing everything to a safe hold mode, it set the, the thrusters, the, the small rocket thrusters on the satellite, were operated for, in fact, probably more than half an hour, all going in the same direction, all going in the wrong same direction, so that in the end, the spacecraft was rotating at uh, once every five seconds. And um, it's a 2.7-tonne spacecraft. This, the centrifugal force uh, threw off one of the instruments and also, as far as we can tell, threw off the solar panels. So that's the end of Hitomi. This is something that you've worked on personally for quite some time. How did you feel when you heard, heard the news that something had gone wrong with the spacecraft? Initially, I couldn't believe it. Um, but what had happened was that, that, that because it started to throw off bits. Uh, people in America who monitor satellites uh, had sent a message to Japan saying, uh, it looks like your spacecraft has broken up. And uh, we wondered what on earth was going on. I was at the time in Japan. Uh, I did actually see it tumbling in the sky, and um, it was possible in the evening sky to actually see the satellite flashing as it uh, was passing across the sky. So that was that's my sort of last sight of the spacecraft. What's been the reaction of the rest of the team? Incredibly frustrating for everybody, and everybody is devastated by it. Everything should have been double and triple checked. Having done code myself, it's the kind of error that I do almost every time I sit down next to a piece of code. I too. I mean, we all make mistakes all the time. I think they really need to be checked, and I think that that's where the problem lay. Um, but of course, there are just a zillion things that you ought to check on the whole thing. The last time I heard about Hitomi was when the crash happened. 
And then the next thing I hear about is that there is in fact a paper coming out this week in Nature. It was observing the Perseus cluster uh, a week after launch and it did this for three days. Just in that time we got fantastic data which showed that this is a, a technique which is going to be fabulous for the future. We found that the gas in the core of the Perseus cluster was moving to a velocity a turbulent velocity of maximum of 164 kilometers per second, plus or minus 10 kilometers per second. That's high precision. What did these measurements actually tell you about the Perseus cluster of galaxies? It told us that the gas right in the middle of the cluster, where we were looking, is moving relatively slowly relative to the velocities of the galaxies and relative to the sound speed of the, of the gas. And trying to understand that, how that gas behaves, what its nature is, is very important. But I think what this result, this single paper has, has produced is a sort of, it demonstrates that the technique is fantastic. And it's also telling us that there's a puzzle in terms of how the energy is transported around in the centre of the cluster. I imagine you've been planning to work on the results coming back from the satellite for some time. So what, what do you personally do now? Pres presumably you're not just twiddling your thumbs. No, I'm working on data from other satellites. Unfortunately, I keep on thinking, if only we had Hitomi, I would be able to measure that much more precisely. Will there in the foreseeable future be another satellite similar to Hitomi, which could give back readings to similar accuracy? Well, actually, there is something that's going to be even bigger and better and is planned for launch in 2028, which is 12 years away, a long time. Many of us are saying, why can't we do something just to replace Hitomi now? A number of agencies are all looking to see whether they've got the resources to build a replacement for Hitomi. Um, maybe a replacement mission could be launched in four or five years. I very much hope it will be. That was Andy Fabian from the University of Cambridge, here in the UK. The paper from the Hitomi Satellite's observations of the Perseus Cluster of Galaxies is in this week's Nature, along with the news and views. Let's hope the Juno spacecraft, which has just arrived at Jupiter, fares a little better than poor Hitomi. Coming up in the research highlights, a possible explanation for placebos and how climate change is affecting plant sex. But first, it's the 300th anniversary of the birth of Capability Brown, 18th century England's most famous landscaper. He shaped landscapes and gardens for an impressive roster of famous clients, and in the process, changed the way people viewed nature and the environment. Earlier this week, Kerry went walking in one of his landscapes to find out how. From the front, Zion Park, a stately home on the outskirts of West London, looks just like many other formal mansions you'd see around the country. But on the other side, the landscape is quite different. I'm off to meet Leslie Pearman, who can tell me why. OK, so I'm Leslie Pearman from Natural England, and I'm a historic environment advisor. And uh, where are we, Leslie? Well, we're at Sion Park, and here we can see parkland grass grasslands. We can see mature trees framing the views, focusing us across the river to Kew Gardens in the distance. And we can see the smooth, smooth undulating landscape that uh, purposefully was created to look natural. He and others removed the formal, more formal gardens that perhaps you have seen in France around the chateaus and such. 
and he used sunken fences or ha-has so that there appeared no separation between the parkland lawns around the house and then the, the parklands that were grazed a bit beyond the ha-ha. Like an infinity pool of fields. Yes, yes. And he was really the first man to make a point of getting out, get, encouraging people out into the natural environment to enjoy it. And, it, and that's sort of really what's created our current passion for countryside, for environment, for nature and wildlife. Shall we have a wonder as we chat a little bit about him? Sure. I'll just bring our map with us in case we get lost. <laughs> who, who was he? Who was Capability Brown? He, he was the son of a yeoman farmer. He was a gardener. He was um, a man who could, he knew about um, engineering water systems, drainage, about ground modelling. So he was a very practical man, but he, he was also a good businessman. Brown's accounts showed that he had royalty as well as half the House of Lords as his clientele. He actually designed or influenced 250 sites across the whole of England and part of Wales. I notice, uh, perceptively, a water feature. <laughs> yes. So this is uh, a sinuous lake for which he's famous for. It's the kind of a characteristic feature of his designs. It feels still quite curated, this kind of space, but it, at the time, um, how, did it, how did it influence how people thought about nature and biodiversity and, uh, you know, the great outdoors? Well, brown landscapes were designed to be productive. Um, they had to make a return to, for the landowner. Um, as well as, of course, all importantly, visually aesthetic. Um, so, for example, permanent pasture that we've been walking through provides grazing for sheep, cattle and deer. And the, the cattle themselves were visually important, as well as providing food and fibre to the estate. And I think if he was alive today, he, he would be very sensitive to nature conservation and he would be designing places for nature as well as for people and after all he's, he was named Capability Brown because of his, his uh, ability to understand the capabilities of the landscape. At Sion there's actually um, the, whole, the whole of the um, river edge has been designated a special site of scientific interest. There's nesting heron here, badger, otter, of particular importance is the nationally rare German hairy snail. So this is a, this is a snail that lives on the, in the tidal grasslands. Beyond the ha-ha, <laughs> a German hairy snail. Honestly, it's like Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> it's almost like he designed a sort of nature theme park. I don't think that was his intention. It, it was his intention to create a place that would wonder and delight and surprise you. So that by inherently means lots of different features, which means this mosaic of habitats. So 300 years later, that is what we have. Because they were sort of productive and aesthetic, it means that they stayed important. He created these natural landscapes, landscapes, he gave nature a helping hand in a lot of ways, but it is somewhat an artifice. You know, he's planted things very carefully, so they look yes. very nice. Yes. Uh, did, did everyone, is everyone a fan of that? Um, many people today call Brown a vandal. 
and some did in his time, um, for the removal of what was there before, the, you know, the formal gardens. He, okay, he felled lots of trees from the formal avenues, for example, but he, then he retained many of them, as we see him Scion today. Overall, the landscape movement has, has influenced landscapes in England really strongly and landscapes across the whole world. It is an international design movement um, and it's, it's sort of, Brown should be recognised akin to Shakespeare, the Shakespeare's of this world as a, a kind of national hero of our landscapes. That was Leslie Pearman of Natural England. If you're in the UK, you have a huge choice of Capability Brown landscapes to visit. Check out capabilitybrown.org for more information and more info on Scion Park at scionpark.co.uk, Scion with a Y. There's also a lovely essay about Brown and his US landscaping counterpart, Frederick Law Olmsted, in Nature's Books and Arts section this week, available at nature.com news. Still to come in the news chat, what the UK's departure from the EU could mean for science policy and research. But now it's time for the research highlights. Here's Noah Baker. How's this for an explanation of the placebo effect? Activating the brain's reward systems gives the immune system a boost. A team based in Israel stimulated neurons in the mouse brain that process things like food and sex. The next day, they injected the mice with bacteria. Their short and long-term immune response improved compared with mice that didn't get their reward areas poked. More in Nature Medicine. Climate change seems to be favouring male plants over female in a mountain herb species. Researchers looked at the population of the herb valerian in the Rocky Mountains in the United States. They've become warmer and drier in recent decades. At high elevations, a quarter of the plants were male, but further down where it was warmer, half were male. A higher ratio of male to female could boost pollination and help the plants spread their range and adapt to climate change. The journal Science has more. Next up, Shamini Bandel has gone meta all over again. Last week, it was research about research, and now she's reviewing the peer review process. Here's Shamini. Peer reviews are like politicians. No one really likes them, but we all agree that they are necessary. Well, most of us. A comment piece in this week's Nature celebrates 30 years since the first Peer Review Congress, a conference dedicated to research on peer review. I asked the piece's author and founder of the International Congress on Peer Review in Biomedical Publication, Drummond Rennie, what kind of problems peer review can cause. Let me give you an example. There were two, this must have been 20 years ago, two young Swedish immunologists, and they said to the Swedish Medical Research Council, may we have a look at your peer review system? Who should get this grant? And so on. And the Swedish Medical Research Council said no. So they went to court under the Freedom of Information, and oh boy, they showed gigantic gender disparity. They showed if you're a woman, you had to publish two to four times as many high-impact papers to be rated the same number, the same high rating as a man. And what the peer review congresses uh, have been part of is 
producing massive amounts of evidence to show this sort of bias so that peer reviews can be done properly. Mm, And gender bias is just one of the issues. And people have suggested effects based on the day of the week the paper was submitted, how many other reviewers there are, and of course, old-fashioned nepotism. It's a really tricky problem. So have journals been exploring any alternative methods of, of peer review? So you've got nature the system where you can choose to have your paper blinded. That is, you take away all the identifiers and then you get the review. Do you get better reviews that way? Do you get less biased reviews? There are various ways of measuring this. Two big journals have done it, JAMA, my own, and the British Medical Journal. And nobody could tell any difference in the quality of the reviews that they received. In other words, we showed that it didn't make a difference because when there is blinded review, people guess who you are and also we know that people guess who the reviewers are. And we know that between 30 and 60 to 70% of the time, they're wrong. So that was another study done on, on peop- asking people to guess and seeing if they were right. Oh, yes. Several papers on that. And, and this is a problem in really small fields to try and blind everyone to get rid of the biases. Either everyone knows everyone else in the field and therefore can guess, or they guess wrongly and that causes just as many problems. Right. And the BMJ did studies, too, of open review. And they showed that when they said you have to sign your reviews, about 88% still said, fine, we'll go ahead and do it. They've done this for 10 years or more, and they've got this completely open system, and it works wonderfully. I think it's going to become the norm. It is really important Like you said, rather than keeping hold of a method that we've used for hundreds of years, let's actually do research into what works, what doesn't, and what gets the the best science out of this. That's what I'm doing. You see, these are things that you can measure, you can find out. Are there any uh, other new ideas that you're interested in or that research is being done on? Well, all these new ideas are coming out. People are coming out with new journals presented in new ways with a different system of reviewing. Some say, if you send us a paper and it looks halfway anything, we'll put it in print straight away. And then we'll look at it, and then we'll see what people think and write in about it, and we'll then decide whether we'll keep it permanently and call it printed. In other words, it's in publication and you can cite it. The peer review system... There's a lot of problems with it and there's potentially a lot of improvements to be made. Is it still the best system we have? It's the only system we have. When I started all this, there was a little sneaking aspect of me that said, well, God, this would be wonderful. Perhaps we we could show that by science, peer-review system damaged everything and was a really bad idea. But we didn't show that. And most studies show that there's a slight improvement in peer review against none. 
That was Drummond Rennie, professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and editor at JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Find out more about his thoughts on peer review and the findings of the peer review congresses at nature.com forward slash nature. And if you're dying to know what nature's peer review policy is, you can find the whole tome online. Head to nature.com forward slash authors. Finally this week, it's the News Chat and Dan Cressy, reporter for Nature, joins me in the studio. Hi, Dan. Hello. Now, last week we talked about Brexit. This week we're going to talk about Brexit because the whole world, frankly, has gone a little bit mad talking about it and thinking about it and a lot has happened in the soap opera. Uh, Give us a a rundown, if you can, of the week's events. Well, it's been another absolutely crazy week for British politics and for Britain in general. Uh, One reporter I know remarked to me in a completely outraged fashion that because he doesn't write about Brexit, he's been unable to sell a single story and is now starving and living hand to mouth. But in high, kind of higher level policy things, we've had some reassurances from the science minister who's come out and said that basically the UK is still open for business and nothing has changed at the moment. But we've also had uh, increasing concerns from scientists, people still saying they think that the uncertainty that now surrounds the UK's position in the EU is going to do and is already doing harm. We've, for example, had a very senior person at King's say that three people they were going to appoint basically as professors are now reconsidering the job offers that they were looking at because they are EU nationals and they're not sure they want to come to the UK. And and there have been some rumours as well that UK scientists have been taken off grants, you know, possibly going to the EU. Yeah, that's that's right. And most of this is just rumours at the moment. And there are a very small number of, uh, of specific examples. But basically, the issue is that scientists like certainty. If you're putting together a consortium that's going to be doing research for five years, you want to know that everyone who's in there at the start will still be there at the end under the same conditions. And at the moment, it's not clear that that's going to be the case for the UK, even if it does somehow leave the EU and then buy back in to EU funding systems. It might not be on the same terms. You mentioned Joe Johnson earlier, the UK science minister, who incidentally, and because this is all a Shakespearean farce at this point, is Boris Johnson's brother. And now Boris Johnson just dropped out of the leadership race for the Tory party. Does that influence perhaps who could be our next science minister? Is Joe Johnson, who supported his brother's campaign, going to be less favoured in the ranks? Well, like pretty much everything with Brexit at the moment, this is very, very unclear. So Joe Johnson insists that he is still going to push forward with the government's programme, uh, the legislation they're, they're bringing in to try and shake up the way science is funded in the UK. He says he hopes to still be science minister in future. Um, and he's getting on with his job, basically. But the problem is that no one really wants him to get on with his job at the moment. All they want is some reassurance. And as most of the things they want reassurance on are not specific to science, they're not really things that are in Joe Johnson's power to give. I mean, if you look at issues like can EU nationals remain in this country after the UK leaves the EU, that's a much, much bigger issue than just for scientists. And turning away from the issue of, I suppose, the human resources, the kind of scientific manpower debate, um, what about the impact that, and I appreciate the answer to this is we don't really know, but what impact could leaving the EU, could Brexit have on other scientific issues, for example, environmental legislation, climate governance, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, because Britain's been in the EU for quite a while, a huge amount of legislation that's been created, if you like, by the EU is law in the UK. And exactly how the UK leaves the EU will, to a large extent, determine what kind of rules we still have to follow. Um, Some things are almost definitely going to go. Some things will probably keep. And other things, it might be the case that the UK government or the UK parliament will pass legislation that basically means we keep the same rules. Um, environmental legislation is is a big bone of contention here. There are a lot of NGOs who say that the EU's environmental laws have hugely improved standards in the UK for things like how clean the beaches are, how clean the water is. It's not entirely clear, obviously, that Britain wouldn't have got its act together in this case anyway, and if it was outside the EU. And it's equally not clear that if we leave the EU, suddenly we're all going to be swimming in filth and pollution. But it certainly is the case that a lot of our regulation in this area is currently EU regulation. All right. Shall we have a refreshing break from Brexit at this point and instead go into the far-flung reaches of the solar system to Jupiter, as the Juno spacecraft just has? So so Juno left August 2011, um, bound for Jupiter, and it was the first craft to, to do that for quite some time. Yeah, Jupiter's a, a really fascinating place to visit, and we haven't visited it a huge amount, even though there are lots and lots of questions that scientists would like to know. So as you can imagine, there was lots of cheering and clapping in mission control, our reporters tell me, uh, when they finally succeeded in getting there, because it's not like parking a car. It's pretty complicated to be slung off this rock and travel through the solar system and then have to do a kind of crazy braking manoeuvre when you get to this giant planet. So Juno, having just reached Jupiter's orbit, is looking for what exactly, Dan? Well, obviously, if you're going to send something like a spacecraft all the way to Jupiter, you want to make sure it can do more than one thing when it gets there. So and this is the kind of uh, official NASA summary of pretty much what it's going to do. It's going to, take a deep breath, determine how much water is in Jupiter's atmosphere, map the planet's magnetic fields and its gravity fields, and look at its magnetosphere near the poles. And as our reporter Alex Whitsey has written in her story... The mission is also going to try and find out whether Jupiter has a core. So the 4th of July was when it finally made it into orbit. What happens to Juno next? Uh, Right, next Juno goes 37 times around the planet and then it plunges into it and burns itself up in a fiery, glorious death. Dan Cressy, that is an excellent description of most of the UK's political parties. And for more on Brexit and Juno, head over to nature.com slash news. And while you're there, make sure to check out our multimedia feature, Back to the Thesis, which includes three short films. Ever wondered how the likes of Francis Collins dealt with the late nights and despair of a PhD? Then don't miss it. And while you're in thesis mood, let us know what yours was about. In three words, that is. Tweet using the hashtag threewordthesis. Adam, as the token uh, PhD on the team, how would you sum up your thesis in three words? Rain. Brains. Pain. Was it a PhD about the pathetic fallacy in English literature and climate change? It was actually about rhyming triplets. That's all for this week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.